Romans 4, 23 to 25. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word and we're grateful that you've given us true knowledge of it. You've saved us from our sins through Christ. We pray, Lord, that you'll continue to show us what your word means and how it is very relevant to our life. We pray, Lord, that we'll be built up in the faith and we'll grow in the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, at the end of his discussion and explanation of justification by faith, the Apostle Paul turns his attention to our benefit, how it benefits us. He has been explaining in the chapter, chapter 4, 1 to 22, the example of Abraham. But why such an extensive example of Abraham? The reason is these examples are in Scripture for our benefit. This is what he says in verses 23 to 25, that these examples in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, these examples are here for our benefit. So that just as Abraham was benefited by the truth of God, we also might be benefited by the truth of God for our salvation. Just as it was for his, so it is also for ours. That's verses 23 and 24. And then in 25, the basis of it, the foundation of it, is found in the work of Christ, his death and resurrection. That death and resurrection, that death and resurrection that benefited Abraham and many others, also benefits us. That's why it's critical to believe in the gospel of Christ, that he came to die and rise again for our sins, for our salvation. Let's review it in more detail. Verse 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written. Not for his sake only. Not only because it explains what God did in his life and how God saved him from his sins, justified him by faith. It's not there for his sake only. Yes, it is there for his sake. Of course, we see the perfect uh, or the the best model that the scripture presents, that is Abraham. We see that and we see how God worked in his life, both to save him and also to sanctify him through many years and through many trials of life. God helped him and God made sure that he persevered from the beginning of his salvation until the end of his salvation or the fulfillment of it when he died and was in the, in the safe arms of his creator and redeemer. Then he says in verse 23, it was reckoned to him. It was reckoned to him. It was written that it was reckoned to him. Why are things written in the Bible? Why do we have access to the scriptures? Why is it here in our hands? Is it in our hands for our curiosity? Is it in our hands for our stimulation, our intellectual stimulation? Is it in our hands merely to give us more knowledge and information? No. 
The Bible is here because it says it was written that it was reckoned to him. Firstly, we see that it's written so that we might see what helped what help God rendered to Abraham. It was reckoned to him. But notice that little phrase to him. It's written that it was reckoned as righteous that he believed in the Lord, right? But it was reckoned to him. When it says to him, it does not mean, it does not imply that only he is to benefit. It is certainly asserting that he benefited, but we also benefit from it. How and why? Because he says in 24, but for our sake also, our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned. We have these examples and illustrations of Scripture to our benefit so that we also might be reckoned righteous, that the faith that we have in God, in what God does for us in Christ, might benefit us, might give salvation to us, that we might also be justified by faith and not by works. He says, as those who believe in him, as those who believe in him, that is in God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Because Abraham believed in God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, in anticipation, he looked to the future for that event to occur. In our case, and in the apostles' case, it has already happened. What the prophets prophesied, the apostles announced as having been accomplished for our salvation. We also must believe in God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Jesus our Lord. So Jesus the man is also the Lord of heaven, the Lord of glory. They crucified the Lord of glory. This same Lord is the Lord Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, both fully divine and fully human. He died on the cross. Now, it does not say explicitly he died on the cross, but implicitly in verse 24, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. We know he died by crucifixion on the cross. He, after three days, was raised up from the dead. And then verse 25. Why was he dead? Verse 25 says, He who was delivered up because of our transgressions. He was delivered up, meaning delivered up or delivered over to crucifixion, handed over to the Romans and the Jews for them to do whatever they wanted to him, to put him on the cross. He was delivered up in that way. Ultimately, delivered up by the ordination or appointment of God, but secondarily, by means of sinful men, the Romans and the Jews, and and several others. He was delivered up in that way. Why? For our transgressions, for our sins. Was it necessary for him to die on the cross? Yes, because it says it's because of or on account of or for 
our sins, our transgressions. Our transgressions, our sins were held against us. We had a debt, a debt of wickedness that we could not pay. But Christ did pay the debt for our transgressions. Why? Because he did not sin. If he did not sin, there was no need for him to die. Because of sin, the soul who sins shall die. Ezekiel 18.4 The soul who sins shall die. But he never sinned. Yet he died. So if he died, why did he die? He died, it's as it says here, because of our transgressions. If we believe in his death, then we benefit for the reason he died on the cross. He died to take our penalty away so that we are not punished eternally in the lake of fire. He took it away if we believe in him. And that requirement of faith is in verse 24. As those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. If there is no faith, then there is no future salvation. It is not possible. Furthermore, verse 25, why did he die and rise again? It says in verse 25, and was raised, raised from the dead, according to verse 24, raised because of our justification, raised because of, on account of, or for our justification. How is it that Jesus' righteousness can be reckoned to our account? How is it that it can be credited to our account if he's still dead? If he's still dead, then there is no assurance that the reason for his death is going to benefit us. If he is dead, then there is no vindication of his preaching the purpose of his death. That is to die for our sins. If he died and he never was raised from the dead, then we cannot be justified by faith. We cannot have assurance that his death was a death as a substitute for our sins so that being justified by faith, declared righteous before God, we have eternal life. We have this great exchange that has occurred because he rose from the dead. If he did not rise from the dead, then there is no justification by faith. The life that he had when he rose from the dead is that life he gives to us because he rose from the dead. John 14, 19. Because I live, you shall live also. Because I live, you shall live also. We cannot have life, we cannot have justification unless he rises from the dead. Let's now see from a few cross-references some points of reiteration here that we've made. In verses 23 to 24, the example that we find in Abraham and others in Scripture. Why are these texts here in the Bible Why are they here? We said so that we also might emulate, we also might do what they did. 
They believed in the gospel, we should believe in the gospel. They obeyed the gospel, we should also obey the gospel for our salvation and sanctification. Keep your place here and turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 4. Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written in earlier times. By earlier times, the apostle writing this letter to the Romans before his death, which was likely about A.D. 67 or A.D. 68, the apostle says whatever was written in earlier times. Earlier times must mean the period of the Old Testament. The Old Testament period, the Old um, Testament scriptures. That's what he means by whatever was written in earlier times. Well, why are they there? Why are they written and for whose benefit? It says in verse 4, for our instruction, to teach us. Why? That through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We need perseverance and we need encouragement. We also need to have hope. All of these are in the scriptures so that it might give us perseverance, encouragement, and hope. Is that not what the apostle explained in Romans 4 about Abraham? It says, in hope against hope. It says he believed in hope against hope. He also had this hope. We also should have this hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. In this chapter, he's explaining the sins of the people. The sins of the people are also recorded, written, that it might benefit us. Verse 4 says, for us, examples for us. And why? That we should not crave evil things as they also craved. The people throughout history, throughout the history of the Old Testament, they craved evil things. They have a nature just like ours. And just as they craved evil things and they were punished, they were judged, they were condemned, they experienced death and misery, so also we. If we crave evil things, it will also happen to us. And these are here as a warning. The evil incidents, the evil examples of the Old Testament, and even the punishment for evil, those are there that we also might not crave evil things and be punished like them. Verse 11. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Having explained some of those incidents of rebellion and punishment, he says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, 
upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. He says again in verse 11, These things happen to them as an example, meaning an example for us, because he says in 11, they were written for our instruction. For our instruction. We need to know the difference between right and wrong. The blessings of doing right and the curses of doing wrong. Why do we need to know? Because the ends of the ages have come. We are living in the ends of the ages. And the time of Christ's return is imminent. Therefore, we have to be ready for His return. Further, verse 12 says... We should not be so proud as to think we're going to stand and never fall like they fell. We can't be proud. We cannot be arrogant and say we are better than they. No. We have a human nature just like they do. We are tempted just like they are tempted. We face many of the same kinds of temptations and trials of life, hardships of life, that they face. If they experience these, we will experience them. So we might fall also if we let our pride rise up against us. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. It's common to man to experience these temptations. It's not as though We are more sophisticated, more intelligent, more brilliant than previous generations. We are not. Anyone who thinks that is proud. Anyone who thinks that will fall, and his fall will be great. We cannot think that. We can't even think that we are better morally and spiritually. If we think we are better morally and spiritually, better theologically, than previous generations, we are missing the point. We, these things that happen, the temptations we face, are common to man. They do not depend on our language. They do not depend on our tribe. They do not depend on our family, our nation. It doesn't matter where we live in the world. All humans are alike. We experience common temptations. Now, if that's the case... What does it teach us? It teaches us that God is faithful. It teaches us that He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. It also teaches us that with this temptation that we face daily, He provides the way of escape also. He does not abandon us because He loves us. He does not leave us to our own devices if we belong to Him. He helps us. He aids us that we may be able to endure it. Continue. Let's continue to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. Jude, verse 7. Jude 7. 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah, this incident and their punishment, this occurs mainly in Genesis 18 and 19. And by chapter 19, they are destroyed. They are destroyed because of their gross immorality and chasing strange flesh, talking about their sexual sins. And why is this recorded in the book of Genesis? Why is Sodom and Gomorrah written there in Genesis 18 and 19? And for that matter, why is it that the prophets, why is it that the prophets, Moses later, and also other prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Amos, and even here Jude, we will see in a moment the Apostle Peter. Why is it that the prophets and the apostles constantly refer to Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, it's a well-known example of unrepentant sinners being punished for their sins so that we might not do the same, so that we might heed the warning to avoid sin, to repent of sin. Because here he says, they are exhibited as an example. They are showing by their example, this is an illustration of undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The fire and brimstone that God rained on them from heaven is not unique in the sense that God illustrated that those who don't don't repent of sins will be punished in the lake of fire forever. He says here, undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The Sodomites not only experienced instant death by fire and sulfur, fire and brimstone, instant death, but they were an example of eternal fire in the lake of fire. This is what they experience, eternal punishment that way. And so also would we if we don't repent. A further example is 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6. We will see two examples here. Second Peter 2, 6. The negative example and then the positive example. The negative will be just like Sodom, as in Jude. Verse 6. Second Peter 2, 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Then... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Verse 6, Sodom and Gomorrah are also said to be an example. An example for whom? To those who would live ungodly thereafter. 
if we live ungodly, then that, that kind of punishment will also come to us. Further, though, in 7 to 9, we have the example of righteous Lot. He calls Lot righteous three times. Once in verse 7, righteous Lot. Verse 8, righteous man. Verse 8, righteous soul. Lot was spared from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this righteous Lot, he had to live in the midst of unrighteous or wicked people. But as a righteous man, he resisted the temptations that were all around him. He resisted them by the help of the Lord and the spirit of grace within him. He resisted and in his resistance, he was tormented day after day. Not only did he resist, but his righteous soul was tormented when he saw all the sin around them, around him. And in the same way, this will happen to us ultimately for our deliverance and their punishment. Verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. He knows how to rescue not only the godly lot, but also the godly of every period of time, even our time. He helps us and rescues us, and he assures us that the unrighteous will be punished for the day of judgment. They will be punished. And that's a part of our own encouragement, that when the ungodly torment us, when the ungodly persecute us, part of our encouragement is to know that the God of righteousness will punish them one day. Okay, now, verse, chapter Romans 4 and verse, verses 24 to 25, in reference to Jesus dying and rising for us. His death and resurrection for us. Look, for example, in Romans 3, Romans 3:24 Romans 3:24 Was it necessary for Jesus to die and rise again for our sins? Did he die in our place? Did he die as a substitute? Was his death a vicarious death? Is that what happened? Romans 3:24 being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Christ, his death is implied right there in verse 24. It's more explicit in verse 25. He is a propitiation, a propitiation in his blood through faith. Well, if Jesus' blood was never shed, shed for us, then we could not Believe in his blood for our justification. For it says in verse 25, through faith, in his blood through faith, 
Our faith in his death, the purpose, the meaning of his death on our behalf. If we believe in it on our behalf, then we are justified. His righteousness is reckoned to us. His righteousness is credited to us. Which means if there is no death, then there is no reckoning it to us. Further, if there's no resurrection, there's no reckoning it to us. There is no removal or redemption if there is no death and resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. When we believe the gospel, what are we believing? We have here a concise definition of the gospel we believe. Romans 15, 1 to 4. Romans 15, verse 1. I'm sorry, did I say Romans? 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. In verse 1, the Apostle says he's now writing, making known to them the gospel which he had preached to them. What he's writing now is what he preached when he first saw the Corinthians. Verse 1 says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, that's the current tense, present tense, which I preached to you. That's the past tense. What he said to them verbally when he was among them is what he is now writing to them in 1 Corinthians 15. Well, what is this gospel? Verse 3 What is the gospel that they believe? Verse 3, For I delivered to you, past tense, when he preached, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Does this mean, as an example, does this mean that God did it in a political sense? Did he die as a political rebel? Did Jesus die merely as an example to show that God is displeased with our disobedience? Or did Jesus die as a political rebel, as a criminal? Did he die because of that reason? Or did he die as a substitute for our sins? Look carefully at verse 3. For our sins. He does not say, as an example, for our sins. He says, for our sins. He does not even imply here that Jesus was a political rebel because he was like among the zealots, um, among the Jews who wanted to rebel against the Roman government and have their own nation. He does not say anything of that nature. He's talking about sins, our sins, if we believe. Sins have to do with a spiritual alienation between us and God. 
It has to do with our sinful behavior, our transgressions, transgressing the law of God. That's what sins are. So this means he died as a substitute. His death was on our behalf, in our place, for our sins. And his burial and resurrection all also were necessary according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. All that was predicted or prophesied in the Old Testament was fulfilled in the life of Christ for our sins. Which means if this does not happen, if he does not die for our sins and rise from the dead for our sins and for our justification, if he doesn't, then there's no salvation. Romans 10, excuse me, I keep saying Romans. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 and verse 10. Hebrews 10, 10. Hebrews 10, 10 to 14. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He emphasizes that there was one sacrificial offering that is the body of Jesus Christ. One sacrificial offering and that is the body of Jesus Christ. That one sacrifice. Well, what is a sacrifice? What is an offering? It is there to substitute for the one who deserves to die. The animals of the Old Testament did not deserve to die because they did not sin against God. But the worshipers who delivered the animals in the temple to the priests, they were the ones who deserved to die because of their sins. But instead of them dying instantly, they brought an animal who died in their place. Those were the sacrificial animals of the Old Testament. Well, here... The scripture teaches that Jesus is the real reason why people are saved from sins. Because his offering is once for all, meaning once for all time. Those sacrifices never take away sins. Well, if those sacrifices never take away sins, then that means that nothing we do, none of our works can take away our sins. Only Christ's death takes away sins. Our sins. He says in verse 11 Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins, for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. 
It's necessary for him to die and rise again for our sins. This means he died in our place. He died as a substitute for all who believe in him. And this benefit is for those who believe in him throughout all time, throughout all history, from the beginning of the world in Genesis till the end of the world in Revelation. We must believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.